0: Some of the words there are very, very similar to what Hannah sings and prays next week in Chapter 2. Do you like a good story? Do you like reading them? Do you like listening to stories? Maybe you like telling them. What is it about stories that we like as distinct from just flat information A good story draws us in, doesn't it, inviting us into the the world of the characters, the world of the book or the movie. We get to know them, we get to ride the ups and downs, the waves of tension and resolution. I know we have some writers here amongst us at Coro, and they could probably tell us more about the attraction of stories and storytelling. Have you ever got so immersed in a story that you're you're right there with them? Uh, You might laugh at things that happen, you might even weep at what's taking place. You might uh, scorn the antagonist or rejoice with a hero um, as he wins, victorious. This morning we begin the book of First Samuel, which is a book full of stories, full of them. Um, it actually comes under the formal category of history books in the Old Testament, um, but it's far from the dry, old, factual stuff in my textbooks that I remember from year 9 and 10 history lessons. Uh, maybe I didn't have a great history teacher, but... 1 Samuel is nothing like just dry, factual information about things of the past. It is full of rich stories. It's also got some other genres in there, Hannah's Prayer and Song next week. Um, And 1 and 2 Samuel actually make up one large book, in fact. We'll get to 2 Samuel sometime down the track, but this one's going to take us close enough up to uh, Advent, pretty close to Christmas this year. So I do hope you love stories, because we've got plenty of them to go through as we go through 1 Samuel. It's probably some of the best, most memorable Sunday school stories contained in this book. Ark of the Covenant and Temple of Dagon, remember that one? Or good old David and Goliath, most people remember that one. But these are not just children's stories good for Sunday school, are they? These are real events in real history speaking about a real God dealing with his real covenant people. And they're God's word to us today. These stories speak to us today. In a couple of weeks' time, in chapter 3, Nat's going to be preaching, and his chapter starts with words like this. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There was no prophetic word spoken. No one wanted to listen. And when that happens, if you know the proverb, what happens when there's no prophetic vision, no word? the people perish, the people cast off restraint. That's what's happening in the days of Samuel. That's the context. But it wouldn't be too far off the mark to describe our own days in similar ways, would it? The eyes of many have grown dim. The ears have become dull in their listening. And not just in the world, but in the church as well, sadly. And yet, as we read in that chapter, in chapter 3, the lamp of the Lord has not yet gone out completely. The light still shines in the darkness. In fact, the light has come, hasn't it? We've looked at that last year. And is shone into the world. The Lord does still speak to us. People are still hearing his word. Do we have ears to hear it? And in hearing, will we have hearts to respond to that word? In faith, in repentance, in hope. Will we respond in faith like Samuel does? Here I am, Lord, speak. Speak to me, for your servant is hearing, is here, and I want to hear what you have to say. Will you pray with me and those of us preaching during this series that that would actually take place amongst us? Not just that we'd come on a Sunday morning and listen to a sermon, good or not, but actually that we would hear God speak to us. That in our own hearts we would say, here I am, Lord, speak. We'd come willing and inviting and pleading with the Lord that he would actually speak with us. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do meet with us, that you do speak to us. And as we've heard this morning of Hannah, a woman who prayed earnestly that you would act in her life, in her distress, she called out to you that you would remember her and grant her the gift of a son. And you did. And she promised to give him back to you. And she did. Lord, in your mercy, you have remembered us. You have given us the gift of your own dear son that we would have life abundant and eternal. Would you hear our prayer this morning? Would you remember your servants here, your beloved children, and so speak to us and act in our lives that we might be refreshed and encouraged, not only in our faith, Father, but in giving our lives to you as living sacrifices? Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we might know just how much you've given us in your Son and so much more? such that our hearts would be moved to respond in the only right and reasonable way, with wholehearted, embodied living sacrifices, in faithful worship and love. This we ask in the name of your dear Son, our Lord, our King and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so the story begins. But Have you ever tried to start a story ten pages in? Missing the first chapter? Or have you come into a room when the movie's already started, you went out to get a coffee and it started? You've missed the opening scenes, you're not really sure how it starts? Or maybe you've tried to watch a trilogy, but you come in on the second or third movie rather than the first one? We could start 1 Samuel from verse 1. Uh, we had read for us, There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and a Paphrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children and Hannah had no children. We could start there and get a little bit of an idea of what's happening, but chances are those names and places don't mean all that much to you, unless you know something of 1 Samuel already. But there's actually some background and context for this book that we need to hear to help us in this series. Date-wise, 1 Samuel, the events of 1 and 2 Samuel, are taking place in the middle of the 11th century, so think the thousands... Thousand BC, That's what we're thinking of here with 1 Samuel. And immediately before these pages, if you turn one back, we get some clues as to what's taking place uh, in the days when Samuel was born. Uh, The book in our Bibles, immediately before 1 Samuel, if you flick back one page or scroll up a little bit on your screen or down, whichever way you're meant to think about that, is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth begins with these words. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. So Ruth's taking place in the time of the judges. And Ruth ends by telling us this. She's remembered, married, married Boaz in the end, and mothered a son whose name was Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Yes, the same David who crops up halfway through 1 Samuel. We can already see how the Lord's been weaving his way through in redemptive history, uh, making his plan and purpose come to fruition. Even before there's a king, even before Israel have asked for a king, we hear something of what might be taking place in the story of Ruth. But Ruth begins, as I said, in the day of Judges. And if you flick back one more page, you get to the book of Judges. And in one version of the Hebrew Bible, Judges is followed immediately by 1 and 2 Samuel. Ruth's not there, it's elsewhere. And that presents Samuel as the last of the Judges. Can you remember maybe from Sunday school, what happens in the book of Judges. Through the years and generations, things go up and down continually. There's three to four centuries of history in the book of Judges. From the time of Joshua's death up to the birth of Samuel. And through those centuries, God raises up a judge time and time again to deliver Israel, whether it's Othniel or Ehud or Deborah or Gideon or Samson, you'll know some of those names. But there's this cycle, isn't there? Of sin, Israel goes against their Lord. They forget the Lord. They turn to idols. They cry out in repentance. God raises up a judge and delivers them, and they have peace. And then they fall away again. There's trouble. God raises up another judge and delivers them time and time again. But at the very end of the book of Judges, when the book of Samuel begins, we read this, the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit themselves. Why? Because there's no king, there's no leader. And that is the context. That's the crucial context as we start this book of 1 Samuel. Everyone doing as they please. Sound familiar? feel familiar i was reading only this past week in an article from the gospel coalition how the original american declaration of independence recognized that any of the rights we have came ultimately from god because we've each been made in his image but then that understanding changed in 1948 with a universal declaration of human rights which makes no mention of god at all so all of our rights are now man-made not from god not from the fact that we bear the image of god And then the article was saying how in 1992, so what's that, 30 years ago, from the US Supreme Court's decision to uphold the right to abortion came this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty, you get to choose everything even the meaning for life and we're living in the fallout of that creed what the writer of the article calls the creed of the sovereign self and it's not just in america it's here it's in the west everyone can choose not only to do what they choose but define what they choose to be true to be your right my right to be whatever our existence is whatever the meaning of the universe is the mystery of human life we all get to choose Lord, help us. And he is. But he's also at the same time, part of that predicament is he's actually handing us over to the sin of the nations, to our rejection of him. That's what's been playing out today. But he does help us. He does still speak to us. And when we cry out in faith and repentance and he comes actually to us, he has come to us and shown us his love. He's shown us the meaning of life and the purpose and the hope that he's given us. He's helped and delivered nations in the past and he will do it again. The situation for the beginning of 1 Samuel is almost as bad, if not the same, as what it was back in the days of Noah. End of Judges, what was it? Everyone did as they chose because there was no king. Did what was right in their own eyes. In the days of Noah, what was it? Every inclination of the thoughts of the heart of men were only evil all the time. Pretty much doing as they choose. Samuel's got a tough task ahead of him, hasn't he? If he's going to be a man of God speaking the word of God to a people who don't want to hear from God. But hang on, Ray, you might say, isn't there a priest in 1 Samuel? Didn't we hear about Eli and a couple of his sons? There's there's, There's something taking place there. Surely there's some hope, there's some good among the land. Well, we'd like to think so, and maybe there is. But sadly, we're going to hear in a couple of weeks that even Eli and his sons, they're weak, they're ungodly, they've wandered well off, the sons particularly. Eli's a bit of a mixed bag, I think, but he's far from full of faithfulness. But there's even a little more worth noting by way of background and context, including the opening verses, which add this sense of anticipation for us. Have you heard any of those names that Geraldine read or that I read? A certain man for Ramathaim Zophim. Is that familiar to you? You know where that is? Elkanah, Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrath. Most of us probably haven't heard many of those names. And that's because they're nobodies. As far as biblical genealogies go, which usually, usually at least begin or end with someone special, a hero of the Bible story, this one doesn't really have much significance at all. Except for one thing. There's one word which should have rung a bell, especially for the early readers, maybe for us. Elkanah was an Ephrathite. A what? Is that just one of the many ites that were around in the day? No. Ephrath was also called Bethlehem. Elkanah was from Bethlehem in that district. And most recently, again, just one page back in the book of Ruth, she too was from Bethlehem. God is doing something in this little backwater village. And the story keeps popping up. Bethlehem keeps popping up. And we have that short genealogy of Ruth and Boaz ending that time with the name of David, which if we start one, Samuel, not knowing the future, it's a bit hard to know. But if we look backwards, we actually know there's some anticipation here. David's the one from whom, or David's the one God would choose, a man of God's own choosing, a man after his own heart to become king so as 1 and 2 Samuel begin even as Israel in this book asked the Lord for a king that's actually not such a bad thing the bad thing is that they asked for a king like the other nations wasn't wrong for them to ask for a king God had already provided for a king of Israel way back in Abraham's covenant God said there would be kings that would come from Abraham's descendants In Deuteronomy 17, we hear God actually making provision in the law for how a king should act. That's important for how the first king of Israel doesn't act here. We're going to see more of that in the coming weeks. But God is something's already brewing in Bethlehem. God is already at work preparing to do a mighty work. Now I know that's a lengthy introduction, but it's a lengthy series, and that's all background and context for what we're about to be reading. It should give us some sense of anticipation of what's to come. Except, with all that anticipation and expectation of what's to come, we're told Hannah, dear old Hannah, has no children. From a human perspective, for Hannah at least, there's no hope, there's no future. Her family line's going to end there. Maybe from a human perspective we should be looking at Panina. After all, she's got lots of children, many sons and daughters, and, he, and uh, Elkanah gives all of them a portion when they go to sacrifice. Maybe we should be focusing all our hopes and expectations there where the Lord definitely seems to be blessing somebody. But no, in fact, not there. In Hannah, things are set perfectly in place, perfect and ripe for the Lord to act. After all, he's the Lord of creation, isn't he? He's the God who created everything out of nothing. And Hannah's situation should remind us of some other situations in history as well. Can you think of some other women before Hannah in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, plus Judges and Ruth, who have been barren and the Lord has worked in their lives, bringing life and hope, and more than that, actually weaving his plan of redemption through them? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Ruth, and if we jump forwards, we heard some of it in our children's talk, Elizabeth, Mary, who wasn't barren, but at that point, humanly speaking, the Lord did something wonderful out of nothing. Bringing Jesus. God works out of nothing. A hopeless situation is not hopeless when the Lord is at hand. Out of nothing, God creates something, and not just something to alleviate the nothingness, something glorious, something essential to bring about his eternal purposes. Whenever there is nothing to work with, God actually works best. When there is nothing to work with, God works best. That should give us great hope, shouldn't it? For Hannah, here in 1 Samuel but for us in our own lives when things seem hopeless when life seems fruitless when you feel barren in whatever way i'm not suggesting the lord's going to grant every christian woman or every marriage children i don't think that's the message here nor am i suggesting that every fruitless barren situation is going to end up wonderfully full of fruit Not every seemingly hopeless situation has a happy ending in this life, does it? Not in this life. That's true. But what is also true and what we can know is that in whatever seemingly hopeless situation and barren time, God is with us. And there is hope. As it is for Hannah here, he's here with us, he's hearing our prayers, he's remembering his children and He is always working his good purposes. He is always working his good purposes, even through what feels like awful, hopeless, and barren days. Because when there seems to be no hope, when there is nothing to work with, God works best. And so the scene's actually set here for God to work. And before we see him at work, we actually get a closer look, like a, a um, fly-on-the-wall insight into the life and heart of Hannah in her barrenness and distress. It's not just that she has no children, she has to bear that shame, but her distress and shame is compounded by the fact that her offsider, Penina, Elkanah's other wife, who does have children, taunts her daily, yearly, provokes her grievously. Why? Because we're told the Lord has closed her womb. That phrase in itself might cause us to raise our eyebrows, mightn't it? It's mentioned here twice, repeating it for for reason to, to make us hear it. The story doesn't answer the question, why would the Lord close someone's womb? But it does highlight the fact that God is at work here. The Lord is sovereign in every matter of life. It's meant to draw our attention also to the fact that this is not just a simple story about a woman who's barren. This is a story about the Lord and his divine purposes in her life, but also in his people's life, in all of Israel. This is not just an insight into Hannah. Hannah's symbolic, really, for all of Israel at this time. Israel had become fruitless and barren. Now, Hannah's got two wives. His loyalty is divided, even though he loves Hannah. When Israel's loyalty is divided, there's consequences. consequences. As there are for us today, the Lord shuts us up and hands us over to our rebellion and sin for those who refuse to honour him. But what we've got here before us is a very domestic scene in what appears to be a very faithful, God-fearing family. Year after year, they go up to the city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. Having two wives wasn't unusual in the day, but it's not at all therefore commending we should be doing that ourselves. But you can probably imagine the kind of conversation as they get ready for this pilgrimage, the taunts that Hannah has to put up with. Oh, it's so busy, isn't it, Hannah, We're trying to get all our kids ready to, to go for this pilgrimage? Oh, that's right, you don't have any children, do you? What are you going to give thanks for this year, Hannah, as we go and give thanks to the Lord at Shiloh? I'm going to give thanks for his great abundance of blessing with all my sons and daughters. Ah, oh, you don't have any, do you? What have you got to give thanks for, Hannah? Year after year, that goes on. Not just once; we're just given one insight, but we're told it happens annually. Even as they go to worship, Panina provokes Hannah. Her husband attempts to console her. <laughs> Dear old Elkanah, am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I commend him for his awareness and attempt at trying to bring some consolation, but it doesn't really do much for her, does it? Us fellows can be a bit daft, I think, when it comes to these things. But in her distress, compounded by the taunts and the provocations of Penina, in her deep distress, I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed even after years of this kind of torment in her own home she can't get away from it hannah has not lost hope in the lord it's not that she's without grief she weeps she weeps bitterly but she weeps as she prays and she prays as she weeps You can imagine, I'm sure, every year would be so painful. Probably asking the Lord for the same thing every year. And not being heard or not being answered until this year. Every year I wonder if her hope would just diminish just that little bit less. A little less courage to even have hope. Because it's painful, isn't it? When your prayers are not answered, time and time again. Isn't it, Ed? Others. And you start to feel that it's not worth having hope, because then you won't be disappointed. It's almost too scary to hope and pray. And yet Hannah does. Year after year, she hopes and she prays and she pours her heart out to the Lord. What was it we sang? When winter fades, I know spring will come. It was a long, long winter for Hannah. But through her tears, she pours out her heart. Lord of hosts, will you look on the affliction of your servant? Will you remember me? And when you read that word in the Old Testament, remember, it's a covenant word. For the Lord to remember means the Lord will act. Will you act in my life, Lord? Would you not forget me and give me a servant? Give to your servant a son, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head, a vow of devotion, consecration to the Lord. Eli, the priest, is standing there watching Hannah pray. Couldn't tell the difference between a drunk woman and one praying in this distress. Maybe her tears and crying are muffling her prayers, her words, although we're told she's praying in her heart and just moving her lips. But I wonder if for Eli, such faith and prayer was so rare that he didn't actually know what was going on that day and Hannah says I'm not drunk I'm pouring out my soul and there's a word play there in the Hebrew it's not rich wine or strong drink that's flowing here it's the earnest vexations and deepest desires of a woman's heart to which Eli responds go go in peace peace Hannah hasn't known peace for years. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Eli doesn't even know what the petition is. He hasn't heard her prayers. And yet he blesses her. And in a way, as priest, he intercedes for her, asking the Lord to hear her prayer. And what are we told? The woman, Hannah, went her way, and she ate. And her face was no longer sad. God hasn't answered a prayer yet. But she's no longer sad. Even before she conceived and bore a son. How? Why? She's been blessed by Eli. By the man of God, she's been affirmed in her prayer, even though Eli himself doesn't even know the content of that prayer. Not yet, that comes later. And as rare as the word of the Lord might have been in those days, Hannah trusts in the word of the Lord to her that day. Go in peace. The Lord grant you your petition. We'd have to say Hannah was a woman of great faith, wouldn't we? She was but only because she was a woman who knew her God, who was a great and faithful God to his covenant people. And in return, as one of his covenant children, trusting in the Lord, she is faithful to him and fulfills her promise to the Lord, which I just think is amazing in this story. Here's a woman who for years has been asking for a child. The shame of it, the taunts. (laughs) What does she do? (laughs) Give him straight back in the text in the story the turnaround the resolution comes quickly and it's not quick in time it's only after in due time it's got to be at least nine months before samuel is born but born he was i don't know about you but often the answers to our prayers are not quick are they nor are they natural they don't come about simply through the passage of time or through natural events Elkanah, we're told, knew Hannah. We read in verse 19, that is, he knew her in the intimacy that a husband and wife share. They slept together. But that wasn't enough. At least it hadn't been until now. Remember, Hannah's barren. There's nothing to work with. Natural processes wouldn't be enough in this case. In fact, they never are. There had to be something more. Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord knew remembered her the lord acts in hannah's life and in due time she conceived and bore a son out of nothing the lord worked and unless the lord worked there would still be nothing the lord works best when he's got nothing to work with who was it who closed up hannah's womb It was the Lord. Who was it who opened Hannah's womb? The Lord. Remembering again that Hannah's grief and distress, her situation is symbolic actually of all of Israel at this time. The Lord has shut Israel up to their rebellion and unfaithfulness. But now the word's going to come. He's going to open them up to His blessing if they're ready to hear it. We'll see that more next week as we read Hannah's prayer but as Hannah acknowledges the Lord's hand in the birth of her son and the gift of a son that he's given her he names him Samuel which means and sounds like asked of God I've asked for him from the Lord and he's given him to me and a couple of years later it's at least after one year we, he miss, she misses at least one pilgrimage but when Samuel is weaned she takes her son and tells Eli really what she was praying for all those years ago I'm the woman who you thought was drunk standing here. This is what I was praying for, he's give me a son and now I'm giving him to you, giving him to the Lord. She goes there with three times the necessary offerings. Such is the generosity, the gratitude of her heart for what the Lord's given her and her own son. She comes. And I love the way, I think we had the word dedicate in, uh, in what we had read. The ESV said, therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. I love the word Hannah uses there. It's not to say that she's just giving him for a little time to borrow and she'll have him back. It's not what it means. Often we say, you know, the Lord's only lent us his children. And that's true. But here Hannah lends her son to the Lord in the sense that I'm, dedica- I'm giving him to you to do with as you please, Lord, for your purposes. He's consecrated to the Lord. And the Lord has a plan and purpose for Samuel that Hannah herself has got no idea of just yet, the magnitude of it. But there is not one moment of hesitation here for Hannah. Not that we're told, Lord, it's not like, oh Lord, you know how it was, I was overcome with grief, I was under all this distress, I sort of made this promise, but you'll let me take it back, won't you? I love my son after, no, there's none of that. She just gladly gives him to the Lord. She actually goes away with joy. My heart exalts, we sing. Or we just sang and Hannah sings. Chapter 2, my heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in my salvation. And he worshipped the Lord there. Now whether that's Samuel or Eli or both, there's some worship going on. I don't know about you, but that whole situation reminds me of another event some centuries further back where Abraham is told to give Isaac up his son, one and only son through whom the Lord was going to do such a great work. Faithfulness, offering, trusting the Lord. And then if that's the case, cast our minds forward when a different father gives up his son, lent him to the world to be hung on a cross to be the once for all holy sacrifice for the sin of the world. And how much more then, the Father who has graciously given us his son, how much more will he not graciously give us all things? How much more then should our heart exult in the Lord and rejoice in our salvation? What riches have we received? What love? Has he lavished on us? What could I ever give to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I'm doing studies at the end of Romans down the hill on Thursday mornings. We've just done Romans 12. In view of the mercies of God, we're told, in all that he's done for us in his son, present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to god which is your logical your reasonable spiritual act of worship the greek word there logic it's the only logical response to god's goodness and grace and his generous generosity to us is to offer our whole selves to him you know maybe like hannah we're still praying year after year that the lord would remember and act for us don't give up hope even in your tears keep praying keep hoping and don't forget what he has already given you in his son rejoice in your salvation he has worked out of nothing in our own lives and given us so much and as we're about to sing musicians maybe you'd like to come up we actually deserve nothing from the lord and yet he is so gracious to us so generous we are debtors to mercy alone Jeff, could we have verse 3 up on the screen, please? That's the one. Thank you. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. I'm sure there were days, there were years when Hannah believed that she was nothing. Nothing. Her name wasn't in the Lord's mind at all, let alone indelibly printed on the palms of his hands and in the pages of salvation history. Maybe some of us feel the same, that we're nothings, we're nobodies. God's not doing anything in my life. I don't think we're all going to be Hannahs and be pivotal people in God's salvation history. But God knows each of us personally and he does have a plan and purpose for each and every one of us. We are each his children and we each have a special place in the heart of God and the plan of God. He has made nothings and nobodies into somethings and somebodies in Christ. Look up Hayden's song if you want to listen to a hymn about that. So we too can pray, as Hannah did, for God's purpose to be revealed in us. Let's do that now. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father God, you have blessed us with so much. With the gift of your own dear son and with him all things, there is nothing we have that has not come from your hands. What could we ever give in return? As the psalmist prays, what can I offer to the Lord for all that he's done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I'll praise the Lord's name for saving saving me. And I'll keep my promises to the Lord in the presence of all people. Father, may we not receive your grace in vain. Amen.